am Caroline Ra, and you are listening to Spirit of the Dawn, Podcast 14. Today, we'll be exploring the evolution of a shaman with author and shamanic therapist, Shauna Hohn. Every single day since whence I wake, I feel the same, somehow I have changed, could do the people of the street. Yeah, made me feel it Somehow life is sweeter every day Somehow life is sweeter every day hey, uh, You've gotta find a time to change Gotta find the time to find this time to embrace The colors, fine lines and shades It makes this place, it makes this place great I'll embrace the change Whoa, whoa, I'll embrace the change Whoa, whoa from beautiful Ashland, Oregon, I am Pleiadian Emissary of Light, Caroline Ra. Thank you all for joining me today. Welcome to Spirit of the Dawn. We are in for a magical show today. My guest, Shauna Holm, is a powerful author, shamanic therapist, and gifted teacher of the shamanic arts. She writes from a place deep inside of her where beauty and wisdom live. Shauna has risen to meet the challenges she placed before herself on her own path and now helps others navigate true transformation on their journeys. Her specialized private sessions are probing and revelatory, assisting clients to break chronic self-defeating patterns and move into empowered personal sovereignty. Her classes on the shamanic arts take seekers far beyond the watered-down westernized model and focus instead on the vast and ancient realms hidden both the world of nature and our own human nature. Shauna is an international public speaker on the subject of visionary shamanic spirit medicine and the author of Eshel Wisdom, Seven Teachings from the Mayan Sacred Feminine, and Love and Spirit Medicine, both of which can be found on Amazon. She has a beautiful website, shanahome.com, filled with her offerings and her writings. I am delighted to welcome Shauna Home to Spirit of the Dawn. Thank you so much, Shauna, for joining with us today. Oh, thank you, Caroline. I'm so thrilled to be here. You are an amazing writer. Everything I always read from you touches me so deeply, and I know you've had a fascinating journey. I'd really like to know who your teachers have been along the way, human and otherwise, who have supported you on your path. Absolutely. Well, when I was a little girl, I would say really nature was my teacher. I mean, I grew up in Toronto. It was a city, but we had a lovely backyard and I was constantly looking for fairies and uh, <laughs> and uh, never actually found them visually, but knew they were there. So I had that relationship at an early age. And then it really wasn't... Then, of course, life was my teacher and continues to be my teacher. But uh, it wasn't until the collapse of my marriage when I turned 40 that I started really, really deeply seeking beneath the surface story, shall we say. And so a few years later, found my way to uh, Brewjoy, MD, who passed away, sadly, probably four years ago now. And he walked away from an illustrious career in medicine to become a spiritual teacher and he was absolutely brilliant. He was a master of working with dreams. He was a master of working with shadow and his work was very mature and he would meet you there. 
And so I'm, I'm deeply, deeply grateful for the work I did with Brew because, you know, I mean, he just, he forced you to look at the whole picture, you know, not to, uh, to be in preference as a lot of these sort of quote unquote light workers like to do and love and light is great. And there are extraordinary resources found in the shadow and the descent of Anana is uh, an essential uh, descent for many of us, though our society, current society would rather just give you a pill and have you numb it out. Uh, you lose so much wisdom. So, so Brew was my greatest teacher. I, I really owe so much of my uh, wisdom to to his teachings. And then I also worked with a beautiful uh, teacher, Miguel Angel Vergara, and he is in the Yucatan, and he can be found through casakin.com, C-A-S-A-K-I-N.com. Uh, my dear friend Trudy runs that, and, and he is a shaman and Mayan priest. And I worked with him for a number of years. Uh, I would go visit and uh, you know work with him one on one, and he taught me a great deal. And he's kind, and he is humble. You know, in other words, I'm not interested in these sort of big rock star shamans, is what I call them. <laughs> uh, not at all. I like the ones who are just really have a tremendous amount of integrity and are doing very good work. And uh, and those have been the teachers that I found. And then also Tom Kenyon, who's a sound healer. And he isn't, I mean, I guess he, he's a teacher, but he's a teacher. And, and, and I've worked with him for an, a number of years. He does more like big, big groups. And he does these extraordinary uh, sounds. He has a four octave voice. And so he's amazing also. He's over on Orcas Island. So those have been my teachers, my main teachers. Oh, thank you for sharing that. That's really fascinating. You have learned so much, and you've written about your journey along the way. I discovered you when you came out with Love and Spirit Medicine, which is a very powerful book. But before that, you'd written Eshel Wisdom, Seven Teachings from the Mind's Sacred Feminine. What is that book about? Okay, well, that was a result of my years of going to the Yucatan and immersing myself in those beautiful Mayan ruins and working with Miguel and Hell. And I went to work with Miguel and Hell for a week or so and one-on-one. -on -one. And at one point he took me to this beautiful cave near the site of Ushmal. And we met another shaman there. And before we entered that cave, that shaman kind of, he, he, he really worked with the spirits of that cave. And he asked me if I had a wish this was a number of years ago now, my goodness. And anyway, I said, well, I, my wish is that I, I become a, a powerful teacher and that I help many people, particularly women, although I work with a lot of men right now. In any case, he said, there is more. And I said, well, the whole reason why I do this is to get closer to creator. And he said, you are going to receive a baptism. And I was told later he'd done that with maybe a couple of other people. He takes hundreds, thousands of people in and out of that cave over the years that he's been doing this in any case. So we went inside and, and he gave me this baptism. Before he did, he took me to an area of the cave and he said, Ishel is there. And I looked and I don't have the clairvoyance of seeing. Sometimes I get it, but I have clear 
her cognizance, which is the knowing and clairsentience, the feeling. I've had that since I was a child. And I felt this huge goddess and she was surrounded by countless people. And, and then I felt a connection with her and I felt her come in me. And as I felt her come in me, the shaman next to me got very excited. And he said, she's in you, she's in your heart. So he you know, affirmed that. And, uh, and then when I went back to Merida that later that day, I, w- I went for a walk and Merida is a very busy city. It's like a beehive. And I, I remember like I could feel people, I could feel them really deeply and I could, was getting information about people and it was overwhelming. And I went back to my hotel room and I started to write because I realized, my God, I've had this profound experience. What am I doing walking around in Merida? This is crazy. So I sat down and began writing and then I felt her come through me. And then that began a series of transmissions, if you will, where that beautiful being spoke to me and I basically took dictation. When I got home, I asked her, I decided to do a full moon ceremony and uh, I did prompting from another teacher I was working with. And so I invited all these women to come and then I meditated and I asked Ishel for a message and then this incredible message came through on the power of the womb. And so that went monthly where I would have a message from Ishel for these women who were coming for a full moon ceremony. And then after a few months, she said, I felt her say, you must take me beyond your forest because I lived on a five acre property with a forest on it. And I understood immediately, ah, this is a book. Okay. And so that's what turned into the Ishel Wisdom, Seven Teachings from the Mind, Sacred Feminine. And it has become the little book that could. It's like this little sweet book, which is really a love letter to women. And there's ritual in that book in honor of you, the woman, and the beauty being that you are, the emanation of the goddess. And so there is a tremendous amount of wisdom there. And then I, so I put in her uh, messages and then my experience with that. And so, yeah, it's just this sweet, sweet book. It's actually out of print temporarily in the process of getting a new printer and it'll be back in the saddle here soon. (laughs) Oh, that's lovely. I've listened to some of your videos at shanahome.com and where you are sharing some of the inspirational messages from Michelle. They're absolutely amazing. Oh, thank you. I listened to them while I did yoga and it was a fantastic combination. Oh, (laughs) great. (laughs) I loved it. Love and spirit medicine takes you in another direction, doesn't it? When you wrote that book. Yes, entirely. Uh, yeah, because really, I would say, I'm, I just turned 53 recently, and so this whole voyage of my 40s was this really intense period of, of unfolding and shedding layers and seeking just voraciously and and shifting and I really I think I signed up for the advanced course and so really (laughs) put myself through the ringer but in any case what happened this was about five years ago uh actually a little bit before that uh uh I was hearing all about ayahuasca and and uh and so I was curious to experience it uh I'd been a very devoted student of the shamanic arts up to that point. And I will say also, I'm not a drinker, I don't drink alcohol, 
barely. I mean, a little bit of mead, which is honey wine, which I consider mead to be the drink of fairies and kings in any case. But even that, like just a little bit, I don't smoke pot. I don't do like anything recreational. Right. But so I saw this as, all right, this is, this is deeply shamanic and this is ancient. And so I wanted to do the ayahuasca, uh, but I'd heard about the male ayahuasqueros helping themselves sexually to women. I knew two women who'd been molested. I mean, that's a lot to know. Anyway, so I was like, where are the women? And um, within a month, this is how my life goes. I heard of two women, ayahuasqueras, who were uh, hosting ceremony. And so I did that and I tried it a few times to make a long story short, but came to the conclusion that, you know, this is not my medicine. Like it just didn't feel like it was. Meanwhile, the mushroom was calling me was really, really calling me. And so I had a dear friend who I knew would be the right person to induct me into that. And he lives in the Washington rainforest and has a beautiful place. And he said, no problem, you know, we'll do that. And so we did that in July and we'd been listening or he'd been listening to a lot of Terrence McKenna who advocates doing five dried grams, which is a lot, that's a big dose, lying in the darkness, eyes closed in silence. And so we did that, but outside in the rainforest at night with this cascading waterfall nearby. And I had a profound experience. I didn't know what to expect. And I was blown away and the earth spoke to me. And and we also, I will say, we did ritual beforehand. I mean, this was done very reverently. And I was just blown away. And when I got home from that, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And I was thinking like, this is a portal. This is a portal. And, and I'm so grateful, you know, that I didn't have sort of years of whatever, sort of fooling around with it or this sort of casual attitude. I didn't. And I really, I had to do it again. And so I ended up going back the following month and doing it again uh, out in the forest. And then I got called again. And <laughs> so what ensued was a year of monthly immersions deeply, deeply into that medicine. And looking back on that now, I realized that was a kind of soul training. And the soul doesn't care a fig what the rules of the day are, what the standards are. No, it's about development. And so I responded. And and then as a result of that, you know, I was also in the process of ending my marriage I'd been with that person for probably, gosh, eight, nine years and eight years, I think, and then became involved with this dear friend. And so I just started writing about this because it was deeply, deeply painful. The whole thing ended up being like a very deep descent of Inanna, you know, where she goes down into that dark place and is utterly stripped bare and then ends up on a meat hook (laughs) Um, and then comes out of it and comes out of it deeply wizened. So I wrote and I basically, I basically turned this, what was a year of deep exploration, but also excruciating inner pain into medicine. And I called the book Love and Spirit Medicine because that's how I think of the mushroom. I, I, I was like, this is, this is spirit medicine. It's really, it's love medicine. It's love and spirit medicine. It's heart medicine. And it will open you. And also I found my way through the mushroom to tutelary spirits. And I know Caroline because human beings have been working with plants and fungi for millennia. 
And I know that at some point someone discovered, hey, this is the portal you can go through and you can find beings who will teach you. And I I just know that because if it's happened to me, it's happened to others. And for me, I came in touch with uh, White Owl and owls are uh, play a very big role in this book. Because once I started working with the mushroom, they started showing up in quite wondrous and serendipitous ways. And I must say also that two years before I worked with the mushroom, I was in the Yucatan. Miguel and Hal took me to another shaman who was a Mayan man, and he did some work with me. And then when we were done, I said, thank you. And I went to leave and he ran after me and he gifted me an owl amulet. And I remember thinking, well, that's very nice. I wonder why an owl. And of course, I kept it. And then, of course, two years later, (laughs) I started with a mushroom and then owl came in as my ally. And so, of course, he saw it around me before I was even aware of it. And so as and I don't do, you know, mushrooms every month anymore. I don't have to. Uh, but that was... I was wondering about that. I was wondering, yeah. Yeah, no, no, that was training. I mean, I joke that there aren't too many middle-aged ladies in the suburbs, you know, going off into the forest at night and doing, you know, five grammars. But uh, <laughs> this is what I was called to do. And this was my training and everything has changed. Absolutely everything. And my teaching has deepened and my relationships have deepened, you know, with my... I mean, I'm not in romance relationship, but like with my children, with, you know, the people in my life who I love, uh, everything has deepened. And then my own um, deep relationship with the spirits, or I call them beings, who work with me and they guide my work. And I am also a shamanic medium. And that is also what happened to me as a result of working with the mushroom. And, And that is actually a very, very old form of shamanism particularly for women. So think of the oracles of Dodona and Delphi. Those women would sit above those ethylene gases that would come up and put them into trance. They would also take in uh, various ungents, you know, that had psychoactive properties to them. We have the vulva, V-O-L-V-A, in the Greek tradition, which were oracular seers, and they have unearthed graves of those women and they would have henbane seeds and cannabis seeds with them and mushrooms of course grow all over Europe and certainly in the Celtic tradition as well we have the druids and the bards and they were initiated into the mysteries and don't think for one minute that those people were not working with these kind of assists shall we say right isn't this story of Santa Claus really about psychedelic mushrooms? Yeah, yeah, that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and and those are not psilocybin mushrooms. Those are the Amanita muscaria, which is the fly agaric. That's the red mushroom with the white spots on it. And yeah, that comes out of Siberia. And so the people, those mushrooms, first of all, would grow near evergreen trees. So there's your Christmas tree. And actually, you'd see a lot of old Christmas cards. And they have always got these Amanita mushrooms <laughs> on Christmas cards. Wow. Yeah. And elves are associated with those mushrooms. And, and the houses would be covered in snow. And the shaman would, I think he would collect those mushrooms, I think, or come down when he entered their house where there was so much snow, he would enter from essentially it would seem like the chimney, the top of the house. <laughs> but those mushrooms would be collected and then they would be hung by the fireplace, I believe to dry. And, and I think they, they were taken on Yule 
uh, or around Yule cer- ceremonially. I, I don't know the full story, but I, I do know the associations. And also, there are tremendous associations there as well in the Christian church. And there are artworks done, uh, Christian artworks, that refer to that mushroom. And the Pope essentially looks like an Amanita mushroom with his great red <laughs> cape, yeah, and his white dress beneath. And it was said that the cardinals then, and th- they would shave their head and, and they would make an oil with the Amanita mushroom. And so when you first shave skin, it becomes very porous. And so they would rub that oil on their head, but then they would have the hair like the monks, you know how they had that sort of crazy hairstyle, like no no hair on top, and then the hair around. So the hair around would prevent the oil from dripping into their face, and then they would, I guess, go into their deep trance states. I mean, you know, look, there is much that is veiled or shrouded within the church, the Vatican, as well. A great deal, right? So fantastic, yes, that's yeah, fascinating. That's great. You call yourself a spell breaker. One of my favorite subjects is actually mind control mm. and fear-based agendas. Yeah. It's actually yeah. something I love to talk about. Tell me about your role as a spell breaker with your clients. All right. Well, okay. So initially as a spell breaker, when I work with clients, it is about breaking the spell of their own perceptions of their life perceptions now. In other words, they will will start with uh, what the uh, in Mexico they call a plática. You know, we start with a talk conversation, of course. So they're telling me, uh, well, I ask them a question. I say, why are you here? I say to them, listen, there's the surface story of why you're here. And then there are the far deeper layers. So I want you to start opening up, you know, from moment one with me. And let's go deeper. And so as they are telling me the story of whatever it is, their relationship or, you know, whatever, uh, I'm listening beneath and between their words. I'm getting a lot of more information coming from them, what they are conveying. And also, you know, whatever the surface story is in our lives, it is but a symptom It's a symptom of something that occurred far earlier in life that essentially set the course of the patterning that would then begin. And so we go back to that place. And in what I tell people is a spell only works if you believe in it. And so, you know, we've made decisions at a very young age with very little resources or understanding. And then, you know, we sort of move forward And when we are in situations that call forth that same feeling again, you know, we sort of exercise that decision and and it colors our actions moving forward. It colors our relationships. And so uh, first bringing them back to that piece and helping them to see is a huge piece because I say, and you talk about the mind control, I'm... Uh, deep into that as well, uh, the exploration of that, because you cannot heal or correct what you will not see. And uh, I, I go I go into numbers a great deal because numbers are uh, frequencies. And in the Pythagorean school, Pythagoras said everything is number. And three is the big kahuna. I mean, every number is powerful, but three is a big one. And I also study law. And I study the kind of law that like a lot of lawyers don't even know. And there is an old book from the late uh, 19th century called Trichotomy in Roman Law. In other words, these guys in law are obsessed with the three. 
And I also look in terms of words. Uh, how many letters in that word? Well, C is a three-letter word. And by the way, owl is a three-letter word as well. <laughs> and the owl is the ally of the seer. And so, so yeah, so we go into that piece and then I take it even deeper and, and uh, in terms of, you know, sort of what we're in the spell, because the beings that work with me speak in terms of spells and they say, and, and I understand that vernacular, it makes perfect sense to me, of course. And then I tell people, explain, look, it's a thick spell out there. It's a thick spell. And we have been under a spell. We were raised by those who they themselves were under a spell to whatever degree. And then we learned to cast our own spells on ourselves. And essentially, our minds have been hacked from very, very young age on multiple levels, right? As you well know, our parents themselves are indoctrinated. Uh, then, you know, we're plunked in front of a television set. And so media is massive. Religions are simply 501c3 corporations, state approved corporations. They're not what you think they are. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, government, everything's propaganda, everything. And so this, uh, you know what, I hate to even compare the mind to a computer. And I say, oh, your hard drive has been hacked. But I don't even like that were th that term hard drive because it makes it sound like it's hard to drive uh, <laughs> uh, because also English itself is a language of spells and it's actually uh, a dishonest language if you will and that is because in law they use English but they call it legalese and so when you go into those temples called courts which are actually banks uh, it sounds like English, but those words don't mean anything like what you think they mean. And that's a whole other exploration. And so when I work with students, particularly those who will choose to sign on with me for a year and then we meet for weekends, we explore this stuff, Caroline, because um, and that's why I say that I go beyond this sort of watered down westernized versions of shamanism. I mean, the shamanic arts are profound and it is more than the soul retrieval and the clearing and cleansing of energies and and the working with the medicines and that is all well and good and you must know what you are in we must know what we are in we must understand what the matrix is because as i always say the shaman sees the shaman sees and so you know what when i see these people on facebook going on and on oh bernie sanders oh yeah you know and uh <laughs> uh I just shake my head. I shake my head because I see through all of that. And, and, and the thing is, anyone who reads a book and, you know, will study that deeper will see that government is not, it's not even a government. In fact, it's a de facto. Um, all those people should be basically dangling from the White House lawn for treason. And then, of course, you know, the knee-jerk response to that might be, oh, she sounds like one of those you know, free man or sovereign citizen, which, by the way, is a contradiction in terms. But no, I'm a woman who sees and the beings that work with me, they speak to me, they speak through me. You will never see me writing like a huge channel piece telling you exactly what we're in and how it works and all of this, because no, they give me clues. And then I'm expected to go do my digging. And we have got to understand what we are in as a people as a nation, uh, as a world, because these guys in charge are destroying 
that world systematically. And we also are, we are earth. And so they are destroying us as well. And, and that's a, you know, you know that full well. And so it's very important to understand this kind of thing because yes, we can work on the etheric planes and we must also work on this plane. And the alchemists speak of this, of straddling both worlds. If you're all the way in the other world or all the way in this world, you know, you're in, you're out of balance. You've got to have one foot in both and you've got to be able to navigate both. Now, in the worlds of the spirits, there are tricksters and troublemakers as above, so below, just as we have in this world. So if you don't know what you're in, in this world, and you don't know what you're seeing, how do you possibly think you're going to navigate that world? And uh, because spirits will lie, <laughs> you know, I mean, you've got to find your way to, you know, ones that uh, are trustworthy as well. And so there's that whole piece as well. So, so yeah, I mean, this is a deep study. I've been doing this for a number of, of years and, and uh, it continues to be, you know, profound study, but the spell breaking is essential because collectively we are still very much under a spell. And when I see people who are still seduced by the political spectacle playing out in front of us and, you know, falling for that and all, none of that stuff is new either. I mean, we're still very much in Rome and Rome was, they were master slavers. And, and so that is a whole other area of study and law is, is highly, highly esoteric. It's incredible. And so, and, and it's the fundamental ground for every area of our life. So anyway, so yeah, I mean, so like, what does that have to do shop, the shamanic arts, everything. You have to know what you are in, you must see. And so when the conquerors showed up to these civilizations that were intact, and it happened to, I'm a Celtic woman, happened in Europe as well. I tell you, Europeans, early Europeans were highly shamanic, of course, uh, with Druids and the Bards and, and whatnot. And so uh, those guys were put to the sword immediately because you know they were a threat or they would turn the people against them or they would try to seduce the ones they could with all of their wealth and silks and gold and whatnot but they were mostly put to the sword get rid of those guys because they could see what was going on whereas regular folks would be you know seduced by by that does that make sense it totally makes sense, and I appreciate your honesty and your insights into things. I do feel that the mass consciousness is evolving, and that's part of what we've all agreed to do here, to participate in that evolution, mm -hmm. uh, in, all in our own way and at our own pace. And I think it's important, in, at least for me, to honor everyone's journey as where they're at in their journey and to honor that. I'd love to talk about beekeeping with you. Ah. Um, <laughs> Uh, I know we both beekeep. No, I'm an assistant beekeeper. You are a beekeeper. <laughs> Tell us about the uh, the sacredness of the bee energy and welcoming that into our lives. Okay, well, bees were worshipped at one point. They kind of are now. <laughs> uh, but 
Back in the days of the Greeks and even before the Greeks, the Minoans were master beekeepers. The Egyptians were master beekeepers. Uh, Egypt was known as the land of the sedge and the bee. <laughs> the sedge was a kind of reed that would grow by the Nile. And so I believe it was upper Egypt that was the land of the bee. And if you look even at the headdress of the pharaoh, which is that sort of cobalt blue and yellow stripe, uh, around their, their head. It looks very much like the body of a bee. <laughs> and so the Egyptians thought that the, the queen bee was actually a king. And, and then the Minoans and the Greeks, my goodness, I mean, they, they studied the hive. There are hive-shaped tombs uh, that have been dug up. And then there have been uh, beautiful, beautiful gold amulets and figurines and whatnot of uh, figures that are part bee, part woman. And so the ancient Greek priestesshoods were modeled after the beehive. So the queen bee you would think of as the goddess. And then within the hive, she has attendants, right, that are always around her because the queen bee must be fed at all times and cared for and they remove her waste and they keep her clean. And then, you know, her, her sole function is to lay eggs to bring life to the hive. And she is really like the light of the hive. And so in these temples, then, of course, you would have priestesses and all the bees, the worker bees in the hive are female and they don't mate. They are essentially chaste. And so these priestesses would take uh, vows of celibacy, depending on the temple. But for the most part, that was the practice. And then also within the hive, the beehive, I'll sort of go back and forth, ancient and, and uh, into the sort of description, but you also have male bees. Those are called drones. And commercial beekeepers don't like drones. They take up a lot of room in the hive. The worker bees have to feed them. The drones don't have stingers. They don't collect pollen or nectar. So you think, oh, well, what the hell are they doing? Well, their sole purpose is to mate with the queen who in the spring, when the hive swells, and gets just too crowded, she decides, all right, it's time. And a beehive is like a single organism. And so this is like a cell that splits. And so when the time is right, the bees themselves choose three or four cells that they'll turn into queen cells, which are longer than the hexagonal shaped cells because the queen has this beautiful long body. And so they'll do that. And then she'll get ready to swarm and she'll send the signal with her pheromones and three quarters of the hive leaves and flies into a nearby tree. And they'll yes. form a they fly into the neighbor's yard. <laughs> yes, they do. And um, how very interesting, back to the, the number three, they have just three days to find a place, a new place, or else they'll perish and, and they gorge themselves on honey, you know, so they can last those three days and then they send their scout bees out to look for a good place. And so I think of that also as an extraordinary act of faith and trust to, to leave the hive like that and go out into, uh, you know, this world of possibility and high risk and just endeavor that they're going to find a place. And really only 30% of swarms survive. So, and then what's left at the hive, the rest of the hive in uh, a bit, the uh, first queen will hatch. She'll sting to death the other queens. And then in a couple of days, she will take what's called her nuptial flight and she'll fly very high into the sun. And, and then drones from all different colonies 
will smell her pheromones and they'll they'll follow her and only the drones who can fly as high as the queen can mate with her and she mates with about a dozen drones they fall to their death after they mate with her and and then she'll fly back to the hive and proceed to lay 1500 to 2000 eggs a day through the season and so you know they are these extraordinary beings and the greeks and ancient people understood that and i must say also that in europe uh, before it was called Europe, it was known as the Honey Isle of Belli, B-E-L-I. Of course, you can imagine how, I mean, Europe is gorgeous anyway, but back then, oh my goodness, there were fields of flowers and beekeeping was huge, huge. And those people were consuming a tremendous amount of honey and mead, which is honey wine, which I mentioned earlier, and getting stung a lot. I also do bee venom therapy uh, because the bee stings are highly medicinal and will uh, cure arthritis and rheumatism most of the time, among other things. In any case, do you know that Plutarch, who was Roman, visited the, uh, the uh, British Isles, and he said, those British Islanders don't show their age till they're 120. And so back then, we are thought to believe that we're so advanced and, oh, we live so well and so long. Meanwhile, you know, our elderly are, you know, I mean, they die, I think, terrible deaths in these hospital situations with tubes coming out of them and, you know, and anyway, whatever, people are so sick. But back then, they actually lived a long time and in Greece, my goodness, there's all sorts of stories of, of these different folks who were 119, 110, 112. I mean, people over 100, that was no big deal. And, and they consumed a lot of bee products. So it's very sacred and it has deteriorated greatly. 21st century beekeeping is not a walk in the park like it used to be. I just had two hives this year and I lost them, uh, although I'm beekeeper at a little farm that I work at a couple days a week. And so those bees are doing doing well. But, it, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, we live in an era where for the past century there's been queen breeding. And I highly recommend reading Rudolf Steiner's book called Bees. He was a multifaceted genius born in 1861 in Austria and as a child could see and feel and talk to nature spirits and then ended up when he grew up he was an architect a botanist my goodness um he was brilliant he i think translated the texts of goethe who himself was he was a philosopher and writer an amazing amazing genius himself but in any case but rudolf Steiner understood the bees, he understood nature. And so he gave a series of lectures in 1923 to farmers who were, that's where biodynamic farming comes from. So there were lectures on that, essentially giving homeopathic remedies to the earth to call back the life force. But he also gave a series of lectures on the bees themselves. And queen breeding was beginning at that time. And he had a bit of a discourse with a beekeeper who was all for it. And, and Steiner said, well, <laughs> you know, he said, that's going to weaken the species, you know, because if we are deciding who she breeds with and whatnot, I mean, we don't have that kind of, that level of and depth of wisdom that the bees themselves do. He said, we will revisit this conversation at the turn of the century. 
and see, he said, this is the kind of thing where it sounds like a good idea at the time. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, and uh, might be working for you, but eventually it's going to backfire. And sure enough, it has. And so we have very weakened uh, species of, of honeybees and then all the pesticide use, people spraying willy nilly, endangering not only their own health, but of course, the health of the pollinators, and then Wi-Fi and all that electromagnetic uh, energies doing terrible things to them. It's affecting migrating birds as well as bees. So yeah, I mean, there are all these factors that are really, you know, affecting them terribly. And so I see beekeeping as like a sacred form of stewardship. And, and it's not just the honeybee it's all the pollinators, but they are sort of this playing the starring role here. And obviously they are because they're involved in commerce. And what are we all in commercial society, <laughs> right? So, okay, that's bringing a lot of attention because God forbid money is being lost. But it's also sort of a double-edged sword in a good way because it's raising awareness. And, and, and so, you know, I think the bee... The bee is, uh, it's showing us what the price tag is for, you know, becoming separated from nature and from the natural cycles and from our own human nature. And at the same time, it is this harbinger, this voice saying, listen, you know, you cannot continue this way because if we go everything is interconnected and, you know, each player on this planet large to small to minute and absolutely incredibly unique and yet essential to this extraordinary earth web that we are are in so yeah so keeping bees for me it is it's a devotional practice <laughs> and on sunday just a couple of days ago I, it was my birthday and i spent five hours at the farm just working the bees and i didn't have to use smoke. I mean, I used a little bit in, in the beginning and I just put the smoker aside and just worked very slowly. It's like a form of meditation and you can feel the bees. You can feel them. And we had just caught a swarm. One of our hives swarmed. Unfortunately, we caught it. And, and just working with, well, you know, you keep bees. You are a beekeeper, Caroline, for goodness sake. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you, you cannot approach them if you're in a bad mood. You cannot approach them if you just had a fight with your kid or your, your you know, partner, whatever. You have to shift states of consciousness and calm yourself. You know, there's no working fast. I mean, I know certain beekeepers do, but... I mean, for the most part, no, that's not how you, you work. And it is understood that bees, as a single organism, come to know their beekeeper. And there have been stories of beekeepers who passed away after a number of years and like almost all their colonies died or, or flew away, you know? So there's this very magical connection between bees and the beekeeper as well. It's really very mysterious. And, and it's an ancient connection because man has been essentially beekeeping for thousands of years, you know, and as I said, it was a, a very high art form in Egypt and, and the, the Minoans. And, you know, we're talking four or 5,000 years BC and, and beyond, of course. Oh, thank you for sharing all that. It is absolutely amazing when we welcome the bee energy into our lives and 
fascinating. It's so many layers to being with the bees and working with them and learning from them. I think my, my real initiation was that I helped catch some swarms last year. Uh, and then I, I had to really work very closely with the bees and getting them back. <laughs> so I'd like to mention to everyone about your website. We're having an amazing talk today with Shauna Home. And Shauna Home dot com is your website. S H O N A G H H O M E. Shauna Home. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Yes, two H's. <laughs> two H's in there. You have an amazing website with so many offerings. You work with people as a teacher and as a therapist. Yes. First, I'd like to talk about your work as a therapist. If someone wanted to work with you, can they do that long distance also? I know you're in the Pacific Northwest like I am. Yes, yes, absolutely. In fact, I I don't know who invented Skype, but I would love to (laughs) truly like meet them and give them the biggest hug because, no, I work with people in New Zealand, in Ireland, in Australia, Canada, and then, of course, you know, the United States because of Skype. And, you know, I could work by phone as well, but Skype is wonderful because, you know, you are face to face with a person in, in, in the, the, the closest way you possibly could without actually being, you know, in person. And so, yeah, and my sessions are 90 minutes long. I also do 45 minute sessions. And so there's a sessions page there. And so it goes beyond therapy in that. And I get a lot of people who've like worked for a number of years with therapists and then they come and then they, I I call it, think of it as sort of cracking their own code, you know, where we go very deep, very fast. So I have people who will leave my house. I've heard this several times leaving going, I had no idea we were going to talk about that today or I have no idea we're going to talk about that so fast (laughs) and I'm like yeah because you know this doesn't have to be we're not going to talk about your same story for the next eight months we're going to go far far beneath again the surface layer of your story to you know what is the cause and Tom Kenyon who's one of my teachers he is also a psychotherapist and he told all of us a story about when he graduated school uh, with his degree in psychotherapy And one of his professors, this lady, took him out for lunch and she said to him, all right, so just know that every client who comes to you is guaranteed two years income. And so, yeah, it's so in other words, you know, it's like, yeah, these people, it's it's like if you can just milk them for, you know what I mean? And just keep them coming every week. That's two years income. So that's not how I work. (laughs) And uh, so uh, it's much quicker than that. And I don't look at it that way. And of course, not all therapists do, of course, whatever. That woman had very loose lips and, you know, never, never <laughs> should have said that. But, you know, it's a great story that he's he's told <laughs> in any case. So, yeah, no, it's usually, you know, we get to the meat of it very quickly and also bring in this profound spiritual component, bring in all of these other layers that have been there, but, you know, you haven't seen them because you're so caught up in sort of the the story of, of your life, you are not seeing all of this other stuff that is active around you that could uh, help you so much. So yeah, so, you know, I work with people and it's it just depends on what's up personally. We might do every week for a month or two and then open that up to every other week, whatever. I have people who are religious once a month. We do a session. Mostly it's every other week. And I see them, you know, both in person and via Skype. And as I said in the description you read, yes, it is very probing, 
very probing. We go, I'm very, you know, I say, I'm not going to waste your time or your money or mine. So we're going deep immediately. Let's find out what's going on here. And very revelatory, of course, and then helping them to come into their own sovereignty. In other words, I'm not interested in, you know, so people projecting onto me, oh, you know, she's this and I really need her for this and blah, blah. It's like, no, 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 no. Let's find out where your power lies. And then let's explore that and let's develop that or, or bring you back into remembrance of that. Think of it as really calling back the original issue. And so I, I explained it this way, that when we were born, we came in and we are the physical manifestation of the positions of the constellations in that moment with regard to wherever on the planet we were born. So we really are like star beings in a way. And that moment will never be again. And so we come in as this baby and we are carrying all that patterning and it's tremendous, which is why I also say that getting your chart done is very, very important. I have a dear friend, Robert Phoenix, who is, and I've had many, many charts done over the course of my life. He is, I think, the best of the best, robertphoenix.com. And so I will often send my clients to Robert to get a chart done. He's incredibly thorough and incredibly intuitive. In any case, uh, yeah, because that is a window into the soul. And so, you know, I bring in these different pieces in terms of, you know, let's really explore this mystery that you are and get past all of these misperceptions of the imprinting that you received and the mixed messages or the terrible messages or whatever. We have to get past that because as the beings who work with me say, it is but a perception and nothing more. And you can call a perception a spell. And so there's that piece. And then when I teach, I, I love to do the year long piece teachings. And I have a couple of concurring groups going now where we meet four weekends out of the year. It's Friday night through Sunday afternoon. And you are working with and I work with small groups, you know, I mean, maybe eight at the most. I like that intimacy and you form bonds with those people. You're all on this path of uh, seeking and awakening and uncovering. And so we go very deep in those teachings. And so I focus on uh, the oracular, the seership, because I think it's very, very important to see. And, and so there's a lot there that we delve into. Uh, also, the cleansing, but going into some depossession stuff, some the cursing, the power of cursing, because that's actually, in other words, if you can manifest, you can also curse. And, and that's very delicate territory, but every single culture around the world cursed. And it's usually done with words. I mean, there are, you know, certain people, of course, who can really get into that and you know, use other spirits to work with them and whatnot. But, you know, you can curse with words. We still do it. You know, what's the most common? You'll never amount to anything or, oh, yeah, you'll just do that again. You know what I mean? You talk like that. And <laughs> those words are delivered with the will of the emotion behind them. And the person on the receiving end, especially if that person is a child, will receive that curse. And it goes deep into their psyche and puts down roots. So there's, you know, quite a lot to discuss in terms of... Uh, working with curses. And, and then I do say also, because, 
you know, I'm a little more pragmatic here. I joke that curses are like bug spray. <laughs> you hate to use them, but every so often, <laughs> and I am joking for God's sake, but that said, there is also shamanic warriorship. There are uh, people who are essentially shamanic warriors, and that is a whole other piece. So in other words, you know, this is not all about like love and light. And, you know, this is this gets very deep and very human. And this is very ancient. And so there is quite a lot to explore. And so I try to cover as much as I can, just so that the people who work with me have a very good understanding, again, beyond the superficial kind of Western eye. And I, I hate to use Westernized as a way of sort of diminishing, but I would say commercialized, shall we say. You know, we go beyond the kind of commercialized piece into far deeper depths, which I find endlessly fascinating. I, I love to explore and I'm not afraid of the dark piece either. I have tremendous respect for it. And boundaries, you know, we go into that and uh, discuss that because that's very important. So, so yeah, there's, there's a lot. And also I work with the, the she, which is the fairy folk, S-I-D-H-E is what the Irish Celts would call them. And, uh, and the nature spirits and the tree people. I explore a lot of poetry. I am a poet and I will be publishing a book on my poems at some point here. I have a number of projects going on, but the poetry for me did not come. I never wrote poetry before until I started working with a mushroom and the beings that work with me speak very poetically. And poetry is a language of the soul and what were the bards? They were poets. And in to Greeks, oh my goodness, if you were a poet, that was just the, the height of being. And babies, they would put honey on babies' lips. And if that baby had, had honey put on their lips, then it was thought that they would grow to be a philosopher, a poet, a great thinker, speaker, you know. And so, and that was the kind of thing that was very much appreciated back then. And so I also, I, I bring that into my teaching as well, because I would like to see, you know, more people uh, welcoming that form of expression back into their lives, because it is very profound. You know, I mean, technology is amazing. It's also a double edged sword. And we have far too many people with their noses stuck in their iPhones and their TVs and computers. And it has really, it provides images and it shuts down the imagination you know, whereas we used to tell stories or read books and then within your own mind, you, you would call up or conjure the imagery that the story was discussing. And so now we have films and this and videos and this and this and this, and it's all these sort of manufactured images. And I think it's very important also in this exploration, in this devotion, really, to exercise the mind in every way we can. I spoke of law before, so exercise the intellect. It's very important that we be able to think critically and with logic and reason and, and that beautiful imagination and our ability to intuit, you know, to have that gorgeous balance. 
So very long-winded answer, <laughs> Carol. <laughs> <laughs> it was a beautiful answer, and I enjoyed it. We have had an amazing time today talking about the shamanic arts and all sorts of other things with Shauna Holm. I encourage everyone to read Shauna's beautifully written and powerful books, Ishel, Wisdom, Seven Teachings from the Mayan Sacred Feminine, and Love and Spirit Medicine, both of which can be found at Amazon.com. And I invite you to visit her website, shanahome.com, to learn more about her extensive offerings and to read her beautiful writings. Shana, I'm hoping that you can share some closing words of wisdom with us today. Oh, my goodness. I would say to, I would encourage people, especially now it's spring, uh, to spend as much time as you possibly can in nature. Find a forest when you enter, spend time with those beautiful trees and observe, because this is what our people used to do. We would just spend time, you know, in a field of flowers or, or at the farm, wherever. We would be paying a lot of attention to the natural world. And that is its own frequency. And that, to me, is the ultimate technology. It cannot be trumped. And it is right there for us. And there is so much that can be learned. And so my words of wisdom are to spend far more time in nature. Uh, if you haven't already to, uh, put a garden in, intend to it and play with the metaphor of what it is to tend to your garden. And, uh, and if you don't have one, there are community gardens you can be uh, a part of. And uh, and, and seek out that kind of community. There are all sorts of characters to meet who are, are way into this kind of thing. And, uh, and, and that is where I find tremendous happiness and solace. I'll quickly say when I went through that year, that very difficult and extraordinary year, I spent a lot of time in the forest and I cried I, against certain trees <laughs> that actually answered back and the forest answered back and poetry came to me as a result of being in that forest. And so there is great magic there and I think a lot of untapped magic to be found. So that is a little bit of my wisdom and my prayer for everyone that they uh, uh, come into uh, deep engagement with that. And, and thank you, Caroline, so very, very much for letting me go on and on here. <laughs> uh, I find you absolutely delightful. And I thank you for your words of wisdom and inspiration. It's been amazing having you on Spirit of the Dawn. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, it's lovely. Deep gratitude to Brian, Zach, and Synergy for the use of their song, Embrace the Change. I thank all of you for joining with us today. I invite you to visit spiritofthedawn.com for more inspirational interviews. Sending love from my home to yours, I am Pleiadian Emissary of Life, Caroline Roth.